This is Making Rounds, your source for information and inspiration about great things happening at the South Central region of IU Health. Hi there, this is Terry DeMattis, and welcome to our podcast today. We've got a great guest in the studio that I'm really excited to have some time to talk with. We have Kyle Hornsby, who actually works uh, for IU Health now, but also um, has had a long and uh, glorious history here in Bloomington. So Kyle, it's been about 20 years um, since you came to Bloomington as an undergraduate to start your, your basketball career, and then you went away for a while. Uh, now you're back. Uh, what are you doing now here in Bloomington? Well, I'm what's called a cardiac electrophysiologist. So I'm a cardiologist who specializes in the electrical system of the heart. Uh, Most people know the heart's a muscle, and it does a lot of the pumping work, obviously. Uh, But they don't actually know or uh, comprehend all the uh, different electrical system work that goes on that allows the heart to do what it's doing and and tells the heart when to beat. Uh, So I went through a lot of training to do that. It's been a long journey. It uh, is uh, four years of med school at IU uh, School of Medicine. It's another three years of internal medicine at Duke uh, in Durham, North Carolina. Uh, and then another five years, three years of general cardiology fellowship and two years of EP fellowship at the University of Michigan, which was a fantastic experience. But uh, when it came down to choosing where I was going to go, uh, it was really hard not to come back to Bloomington because I've had such great experiences here with great people. Well, we're really glad you're back. And we're going to talk a little bit more later about what you're doing in medicine. Uh, But right now, I want to talk about when you came here in 1998, I believe. Uh, It must have been a bit of a culture shock because I believe you grew up in a small town in Louisiana. So tell me about growing up there. And then how how did you end up coming to IU? The little town is called Anacoca, Louisiana. When I first got there, I was five. Uh, Came from just north of there. And uh, there was no stoplight. There was a post office. Um, The population, I believe, was still reading about 846 when I left. So very small school, K through 12. Um, It was a a very slow pace of life. But uh, as in Bloomington, just a lot of wonderful people. Uh, And the school system was fantastic. Both my parents were teachers. And so really enjoyed that time growing up there and, and really just learning to be a productive person <laughs> in general. Uh, they, they really worked on uh, the basic skills there. And then when it came down to choosing where I was going to go, yes, culture shock to say the least. I remember arriving on campus and just seeing these large limestone buildings and was thinking, what, what am I doing here? <laughs> but uh, you know, when you get here, you have goals and you kind of push all of that to the side and you say, okay, well, how am I going to get through day one? How am I going to get through week one? How am I going to get through year one? Uh, and you keep moving forward. And, and uh, you, you questioned uh, uh, how I got here to IU uh, initially. Well, I was playing a lot of basketball at the time and uh, was in Florida at a, in what's called an AAU tournament. A lot of people are familiar with AAU these days. Uh, it was really kind of on the, the front end of how big it has actually gotten. Uh, and uh, Coach Mike Davis had actually seen me play at one of these tournaments uh, between my junior and senior year. From that point, the recruiting process took place, and uh, Coach Knight came down for a recruiting visit. From that point, I was pretty much sold. He said, well, are you going to come? And I said, well, if I go up there and I like the people and I enjoy the, the town, uh, then I'm going to come. So I, I came up here for a visit in, I believe, September of 97, if I remember correctly and canceled all the other visits I had planned. It was the only official visit I took to any university and said, yeah, I'm coming and made my way here. And I've never regretted it. 
Well, we're certainly glad that you're here. And you talked about your town and the kind of people that you grew up with. And I, I read somewhere that um, if you came home after a game that you had lost, you'd go back in the gym, all the coaches would lock up and leave, and you would you would stay there for hours practicing. Where did that drive and de- de- determination come from? That's hard to say. I think that that involves a lot of uh, kind of introspective evaluation of who you are as a person. Uh, I think some of it's biologic. I think I was that way from the beginning, uh, as far as I can remember. Uh, and then part of it is how you're brought up. I mean, if you're around a lot of people like that with good work ethics, uh, you're going to that's going to rub off on you. So when I was coming up, I had an older brother. He was fantastic, and he was similar to, to me. He really uh, worked at it. Um, I think the only uh, difference between a lot of people and me is I did have the ability, some of the genetics involved, to allow me to, to get as good as I got and then didn't allow me to get any better <laughs> after that, which is the reason I had to choose a different profession. <laughs> Did you have uh, anyone else in your family who had played sports before? So my father played uh, small college basketball. Uh, My mother did not. But uh, my father was a high school basketball coach as well. Uh, He did not coach me. He thought that would be a poor outcome. (laughs) (laughs) He was a little fiery as well. Ah, Okay. (laughs) Well, now I want to set the stage for what some consider one of the best basketball games ever at Assembly Hall. It's the 2000 season. IU is playing Michigan State, the number one team in the country. They've had a 23-game winning streak. It comes down to the final shot, and you get the ball. Winning streak dating back to last season for Michigan State, and here we go. Now, you had the ball. Why didn't you take the shot? I think that's an excellent question, and I've been asked that many times. And, you know, before there was the watch shot, and there was Kirk Haston. Um, and arguably, I think, one of the, the biggest shots, I agree, uh, in Assembly Hall. What people don't realize is that that exact same circumstance presented itself uh, against Missouri at Assembly Hall earlier that year. And in that particular instance, because of the way I'm coming off of that screen, coming from the right to the left, if I can't pivot and turn right into the shot, then I have to do a reverse pivot and shoot it a little bit off balance. And that's exactly what I did against Missouri, and I missed it. So as I came off, I believe it was Jason Richardson who was on me. He was a very good defender, ended up being a great NBA player. And I knew he was right there on my shoulder. So if I were to go up with it immediately, I felt like he would probably contest it pretty well, if not block it. And I didn't want to pivot again because I knew that would be a little bit off balance. Uh, and so immediately when I saw that, I turned directly and looked at Kirk because I knew he was going to come off of the screen from Jared Jeffries. And he did the rest of the work. But that's the background on that. When I came off it and I saw Richardson there, I thought in my head, there's no way I'm shooting this ball. <laughs> well, that's the value of team, right? Because you are all supporting each other. And sometimes somebody gets to take the shot, but it's everybody who did the work to get them there. Uh, that's exactly right. I mean, that, that play in particular worked very well throughout the season. And we continued to use that play uh, even throughout the Final Four the following year and reaching the, the NCAA Final. So that play worked well, really well for us, and we were very familiar with it. And, and it worked because everybody knew what they could do, and they did it well. 
Yeah. I wasn't in Bloomington at that time, but it was a lot of fun just to, to go back and watch that. It must have been just such an exciting time to be a player and be a part of the whole sports program at IU. It seems like every couple of years I'll go back and I'll pull it up on YouTube and I'll just watch the game because <laughs> it's just uh, it's so many good memories. Those teammates I still stay in contact with. We have reunions every now and then. It's Those relationships last. Well, uh, when you were a player, there's countless stories about your humbleness and kindness. I read about a lady that uh, sat behind you in the stands, and she talked about how you would come up and say things, uh, sometimes even give her a hug. And so I know now as a, as a physician, um, you really are seen as someone who listens well. Patients have the opportunity to rate their physicians now, and the ratings are actually online for anyone to see. And as I was scrolling through uh, the comments about you, there's hundreds of them, there were things commonly consistent. You know, he takes the time to listen. He really cares about me. Um, Was there someone in your life that that instilled that kind of character in you? First off, uh, Barbara, if you're listening, it's Barbara Schlesinger was the the lady in the stands. She's wonderful. Secondly, uh, I would say, again, I had wonderful parents. And uh, my father's fantastic, but my mother in particular, she really instilled in both my brother and I the ability to, or the desire, I should say, uh, to really care about people and care about what they do and how they feel. I think that's one of the reasons uh, that I've been able to relate to many of my patients. Not every physician is for every patient. And some patients are desiring something a little bit different from their physician. So I don't claim to be perfect and for every patient. But, but it is one of the reasons that I'm able to connect with most of my patients. Uh, and I enjoy it. I enjoy that part of it. And, and one of my biggest issues with clinic uh, in particular is that we don't get to spend that kind of time with our patients sometimes. The schedule becomes hectic. And there are conversations that need to continue. And you have to stop because there are other patients that need your care as well. I wish we could spread that out. um, But the detriment in that is that there are patients that still need your care that need to be seen. And if you spread it out too much, you're not going to get to see them. But uh, I really enjoy that part. And I would would credit my mother in particular and and family for that, that ability. Well, your parents must be very proud of you. And I know we're really happy to have you as part of IU Health. And I know our community and our patients really are benefiting from that. Being a student athlete must have been grueling. Um, How did basketball prepare you for your career as a physician and your medical training? It's time management. With no hesitation, it's time management. Uh, When you spend as much time as many Division I athletes spend on their individual sport, it's like having a second job. So uh, if you don't manage your time, you're going to fail in one or the other, whether it be your academics or whether it be you're just not excelling on the court or on the field or uh, or so forth. So the ability to manage that time to, to look at, look at your day the night before and say, I'm going to be here, I'm going to be there. And even look in advance at the next week or two weeks and say, here's what I need to do in order to, to accommodate what I'm being required to do uh, in the classroom or on the court. And how am I going to excel in both? Uh, time management is key and it continues to be the case now. And it's, uh, really what, got me through medical school and continues to, to get me through what I do now. Have you had any particular mentors here in Bloomington or throughout your career uh, that have helped you as well? 
So here in Bloomington in particular, uh, both Larry Rink and John Strobel have been instrumental throughout the entire process, really. I can remember uh, I was initially going to go to physical therapy school. And so I had talked to Larry Rink, who's a cardiologist here in town. And I said, uh, Dr. Rink, I think I'd go to physical therapy school. He said, okay, well, we'll go through the process and here's what you got to do. And I talked to other people and went through the process. And uh, he called me one day and he said, hey, uh, I got good news for you. You got into physical therapy school at such and such a school. And I said, well, Dr. Rink, I've been thinking about it a little bit. And I, I think I want to go to medical school. And he paused. I said, well, that's going to be a little harder. <laughs> uh, not that physical therapy school isn't hard, but in medical schools, it, it seems to be a little step up. But went through the, the whole process. He was there anytime I, I called and had questions about it. Uh, continued to check in on me uh, from day one, from 2005. And his office is right next to mine. <laughs> I can still go in there and, and ask him a question or two. And he can come into my office and ask me about electrophysiology. John Strobel uh, is another one. Uh, he's my partner here, uh, the other electrophysiologist in town. And he's been here for, I believe, 19 years, if I, if I count the years correctly. And he, along the way, has been very instrumental as well. I got to know him about 10 years ago, maybe even longer, through medical school. And I've been in contact with him throughout my training. And uh, he's one of the reasons I became an electrophysiologist. I, I was actually in his lab as a med student and saw what he did and really took an interest to it and found it fascinating. It's like a little puzzle you're trying to put together uh, with the EP studies and ablations. Uh, the vices are a little different. I enjoy those too, but um, the puzzles are what I enjoy most. And, and I really saw that firsthand when I was with him as a med student. Uh, and it's one of the reasons I be, I'm doing what I'm doing now. You had the opportunity, I think, to go overseas also with Dr. Rigg. He introduced you to something there. What was that experience like and what were you doing? So I was a research coordinator initially. It's part of FISU, which is a uh, international organization for university sports. It's worldwide, and uh, they kind of nicknamed it the Mini Olympics uh, for university athletes. Uh, it's not uh, well known here in the United States, uh, but across the world, especially in Europe and Asia, it's very big. And he asked me to participate in a cardiovascular screening program that he had promoted, and he was the chair of the medical committee at that time for all of FISU. And uh, I went to actually South Korea and was the research coordinator for our cardiovascular screening program where we did echocardiograms, EKGs, and basic uh, demographic data. Uh, and it was very successful. Uh, and he was actually stepping down, unbeknownst to me, and uh, there was a recommendation for me to not take the place of him, but to be the U.S. representative on the medical committee for FISU, uh, which did occur. Uh, he stepped down, and now I'm a medical committee member. Uh, and have gone on to uh, go to Taiwan uh, in 2017 uh, and participated in those uh, FISU or World University Games. They also had another one in Italy uh, just uh, a couple months ago. I was not able to attend uh, due to work constraints. But in that process, I've been able to go to other locations, uh, uh, Slovakia and Switzerland, uh, Mexico. I was supposed to go to Brazil, but uh, did you guys know you needed a visa to go to Brazil? <laughs> <laughs> I did not know. I did not know that either, and therefore I did not get to go. Uh -huh. <laughs>
So it's been a wonderful experience. So now shifting back to Bloomington, and you talked a little bit about Dr. Rink and Dr. Strobel. We're really fortunate here in our community to have an extremely strong cardiology practice with, with lots of specialties offered. And I know uh, that you in particular are working on something that's pretty exciting called the Watchman Procedure. Mm -hmm. uh, why is that important for patients? Well, here in Bloomington, what we're striving to do is have a very comprehensive cardiovascular program. And I think we've been able to obtain that, and we're adding a few other things along the way, especially coming in January. Uh, Tavers will be added here. And I think at that point, we'll be offering a very comprehensive program aside from adult congenital, uh, which I think most patients go to Indianapolis for that. But in that process of looking to see what we need to offer our patients in order to provide them the best care possible, we saw the watchman as a need here. Um, as an electrophysiologist, we take care of uh, the bulk of arrhythmias, uh, and the most common arrhythmia is atrial fibrillation. More than 10% of the population greater than 80 years old has atrial fibrillation, and 5%, 60 and 65 and older, have atrial fibrillation. And then I take care of patients as young as in their 20s who have atrial fibrillation. So with that, the stroke risk is really what we're worried about. Uh, atrial fibrillation is not a life-threatening condition. It's the stroke risk that becomes a problem. And if you have a high enough stroke risk, not everybody needs blood thinner, but if you have a high enough stroke risk, you need anticoagulation. And that includes warfarin, Perdaxa, Xarelto, Eliquis, and now there's a newer one called Adoxaban that's coming out. Not everybody can take that. And even if they can, they may not be long-term good candidates for that. So if they've had intracranial bleeds, bleeds into the brain, if they've had gastrointestinal bleeding, that's recurrent in addition to that. If they have uh, hematuria, which is bleeding in the, the urine, uh, if they have frequent falls and they break bones, they hit their head, that can lead to, to bleeding into the brain as well and around the brain. These patients, they, they aren't good candidates for long-term anticoagulation, but they may remain high stroke risk. And so what we used to tell them is, well, I, it's a rock and a hard place. Would you rather have a stroke or a bleed? And that's Not, really... Neither one a good, good solution. Neither one is a great solution. Uh, but almost uniformly, people will say, well, I'd really have a bleed. I don't want a stroke. Because the strokes with atrial fibrillation have very high morbidity and mortality. They're large strokes. They're not, hey, my fingers went numb. They're, oh, my whole right side of the body went numb. Okay? So now, historically, I should say, the only way to prevent strokes or try to prevent strokes without anticoagulation is they would surgically close something called the left atrial appendage, which is this little, it's almost like the appendix in your gut, except it's coming off the top part of your heart. And that's where greater than 90% of the clots form in atrial fibrillation, and then actually get shot out to the brain and other organs and cause problems. Well, if you can close that, then you're preventing that greater than 90%. Historically, we could not do it any other way than with a, an, a heart surgery, whether that's a thoracotomy or a sternotomy where you split the chest or going through the side. But over the last several years, and it, this dates back, the, the progression of this dates back to 2005, but the FDA approval was in 2015 for the Watchman, which is a left atrial appendage occlusion device. And what we do is we actually go up through the groin vein, the femoral vein, and we cross over to the left side of the heart in the top chambers, and we deliver this umbrella-like device into this appendage that closes off the appendage and does the same thing that used to be done surgically. And your own heart tissue will then cover up 
that device so that it what we call endotheliizes and you prevent your risk of stroke okay so it, ha it is equivalent to that of anticoagulation so you can have strokes on anticoagulation just like you can have strokes with this device but it's equivalent in stroke reduction while significantly lowering your long-term bleeding risk because you eventually come off the blood thinner and usually 92 percent uh, come off the blood thinner completely at six months and 99 percent at one year wow i know that must be making a tremendous difference in the quality of life for people especially people who want to be active and out doing things in their later years it has been night and day from the patients that we've done and we started doing this at the very beginning of 2019 so we've done this for several months now and and we on purpose waited we wanted to make sure the data panned out well enough that we're offering patients the right thing for the right reasons um, but you see patients now that are off their blood thinner and, and going about their lives, and it makes a, a significant difference in their quality of life not to have, one, the increased bleeding risk or the active bleeding for some of them. So before we close, I know you have a beautiful family, a wife and some kids. Tell us a little bit about your family and, and how they're doing here in Bloomington. My wife is wonderful. Uh, her name's Whitney Hornsby. Um, she uh, currently is working from home. She actually does uh, cardiovascular research for the University of Michigan in Arbor, in Arbor, where we came from. So she continued on with her research endeavors. She's a PhD. So she does that and takes care of the four kids. So I have seven-year-old boy-girl twins, and I have uh, three-year-old boy-girl twins. So Wow, two sets of twins. <laughs> it, it is an active household. I sometimes feel like work is a break but they are a blast they're a lot of fun and uh, i never thought that i would learn as much from my kids as i have even at such a young age I, i've learned a lot uh, uh, not only about me but just about how people interact how they learn how they develop and it's been a, a whole lot of fun and i look forward to more of it and and we've established ourselves here in Bloomington, and, and they've really enjoyed Bloomington as well. Well, we're very happy to have you in our community. We're extremely happy to have you as part of IU Health. And I just want to take the time to say thank you to you for coming in today and talking with us. I know our listeners are really going to enjoy hearing about what you're doing here. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. I, I enjoy reflecting on, on Bloomington and, and the different things that have taken place uh, over the last 20 years. <laughs> well, I know there's much more, uh, many more good things coming for you in the future. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. If you have any questions or comments about this episode or ideas for guests or topics for future episodes, email us at makingrounds at iuhealth.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.